welcome to Restart Radio, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Ugo Vallauri from the Restart Project. Today, I'm joined on the phone by environmental journalist Maxine Perella. Hi there. Hello. And in the studio by longtime Restart Repair coach Dave Lukes. Hi. This week's show is dedicated to a new decision by the European Commission that could bring a lot of change in the way our electrical and electronics, specifically computers, uh, laptops and tablets, are made. On, in, in August, a few weeks ago, uh, the European Commission published a so-called decision, which is a law that uh, established new criteria for equal labeling for such products. And it's quite a big change. Maxine, you've been following the story and I wanted to hear your thoughts. Yeah, sure. Um, well, basically, the, uh, the EU Eco label, as it's known, um, is attached to various product groups and uh, it, help, it helps people identify products uh, that have reduced environmental impact throughout their life cycle. So that's from the extraction of the raw materials used to make the product right through to the production, use and disposal of, of a product. Um, and uh, this recent decision by the Commission, um, they've, they've decided to add some new product categories to the eco-label, one of which is uh, computers. Um, so this is, this is quite a positive move, actually, because um, I think it will encourage electronic companies to, to think about designing waste out of their devices. Right. So it's actually a, a, a step in the right direction, as we said, as soon as we read this document, because originally um, there was a much leaner document that was agreed approximately five years ago that was fairly vague in regards to repairability, upgradability of computers and didn't take into consideration at all uh, tablets, computers, which have emerged as an important category or hybrids and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with this, it's, it's, it's um, you know, the, the idea of basically um, transferring th this kind of criteria, I, I guess, to products that have, you know, are more portable. So, for instance, you know, I think there's already um, <clears throat> a product category for a TV. But, you know, the, the actual, you know, to, to use a TV, you might use that for, for many years before thinking about replacing it. Um, for a, a more p a portable device, you know, like, like a laptop, for instance, or a tablet, you're, you're, like, you're likely to want to upgrade that more frequently. So if you can build in criteria that makes those products, when somebody ha no longer has a use for them, more repairable or easier to disassemble, to disassemble, then I, I think that's, that's a very encouraging move. One of the aspects that we uh, appreciated is the move towards uh, a, a set of criteria that is not so reliant on the energy consumption uh, of the product <coughs> while in use, but actually takes into consideration a more life cycle approach, so a bit more holistic in terms of realizing that 
the energy consumption is just one uh, part of of the problem. Uh, Dave, from your perspective, how do you see this as being positive? Oh, so many ways. Uh, apart from the environmental issues, for instance, labeling of components, if you notice one of the things they're insisting on is that each component is labeled with its, you know, in case of plastics, with its recyclability type and so on. So except in the case of very tiny components, you will be, you are guaranteed to be able to recycle them. So from becoming this massive stuff which you can maybe recycle, maybe not, so on, it starts to move in the direction that, for instance, your laptop at the end of his life, even if you can't upgrade it anymore, will be able to be stripped down, components reused in some cases, and all parts recycled if not. So, for instance, damaged components will have another life. They'll be recycled instead of being disposed of in landfill. In regards to the actual energy consumption, <laughs> one of the, the fears we've had in the past about uh, big claims um, were easily captured by a study by the United Nations University that um, made the claim that actually uh, if you wanted to upgrade a computer because you would move to one that would be more energy efficient, you would then need to use it for approximately 19 years. Yeah to factor in the energy that had gone into manufacturing that product. Uh, Maxine, you, you've been following this sector now for quite some time. Do you see um, a more nuanced approach to understanding energy in use as opposed to energy in manufacturing and throughout the life cycle of products? Yeah, I, I do. I think it's going to take a while, you know, to, to, to make that um, transparent, I guess, uh, to, to but also understandable to them. Um, the trouble, I think, with, with eco-labels is that there are a lot of them out there. And it's how you decipher that if you're a consumer. You know, what, what does one particular eco-label mean? Um, and, and how do you, if you want more information, um, how, how can that information be more, made more accessible, I guess, within the product packaging itself? Uh, I'd like to see a, a kind of clearer transparency around that so a consumer can, can really understand um, that whole kind of use journey of a product. Absolutely. And actually, let's not forget that while this is a positive step, it doesn't uh, mean that um, it automatically influences all manufacturers uh, to make all products fit with these criteria. Um, it is a voluntary scheme and uh, um, at the moment, although it, this refers to the previous version of the um, criteria for the eco-labeling, there are pretty much no computers uh, that have uh, that are currently um, available uh, on the market that have um, received eco-labeling uh, by the EU. Um, I guess in the case of the UK, there's also... A bigger question, uh, Maxine, I don't know if you want to comment on this, on whether this might apply or not in the future anyway. Yeah, I, well, of course, because of Brexit, um, so much is, uh, is up in the air um, as regards the UK's um, continued you know, participation in, in a lot of European-led environmental schemes like this. Um, and the finer detail of that is, is obviously still to be thrashed out. Um, so yes, whether I, I would imagine for a, for a man, you know many uh, electronic manufacturers have global supply chains, so I would imagine um, that they that they will want to to basically push for something like this regardless. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that this scheme is voluntary. 
um, you know, at the end of the day, will anything change unless uh, companies are mandated to do this by law? Um, that that's a big question mark, and I think if if, if, if something is voluntary, um, then really those products that do carry an eco label will have to sell better, I think, than ones that don't, in order to uh, incentivise more manufacturers to apply for an eco label. And if that starts to happen, then I think it will start to raise standards across the the whole electronics industry. So I guess there's a role for um, consumers, organisations, and uh, uh, citizen rights organizations to, to mm-hmm. actually push for more visibility and more uh, information around uh, this kind of labeling to better understand and actually to demand more uh, uptake by companies because that will probably increase the pressure so that such products will become more readily available. Yeah, uh, one thought that occurred to me as an IT professional is it might be convenient for companies to specify an eco-label because it specifies repairability. Right. So, Dave, let's not forget that you are an IT manager in mm. your day uh, work yeah. and night at times. And, uh, yeah. and that means you see uh, products coming in and out for repair or an upgrade needs all the time. Yeah, exactly. And it would, at the moment, it's a bit of hit and miss. Sometimes you can upgrade something, sometimes you can't. And I do think you may see some companies both, if you like, as a greenwash measure to say, hey, look, we're environmentally friendly. They may take it on anyway, but also they may realize the benefits in terms of being able to, for instance, one thing we talked about, um, it specifies the number of steps needed to upgrade the hard drive. Yes, I mean, this is quite specific and Hmm. a big step forward. Previously, the uh, certification was based on fairly... Um, vague criteria and now it specifies the number of tools and the number of steps required if for example you need to change a battery or um, a hard drive and and also ensures that upgradability of memory is possible while we've seen a lot of recent uh, laptop particularly models um, that cannot be upgraded in any way due to the limited ports or the way certain components are um, soldered into the main board. Yep, indeed. So, as I say, there is the possibility that m- me and people like me, especially small to medium-sized companies who don't outsource their whole IT operation, it may actually be beneficial simply because we'll be able to say, if we buy one of these, we know we can upgrade the memory, the hard drive in this number of steps and implicitly with in a short amount of time. Right, because time is money at the end of the day. And I guess the eco-labeling, Maxine, seems very much targeted to individuals, but I guess Dave makes a good point that it could push towards uh, much more uptake if companies really stood up and uh, started adopting it as a criteria for procurement. Yeah, you know, I think, um, for instance, public procurement, you know, by governments, uh, large public sector organisations, if they start specifying that they want the eco-label um, on some of the products that they buy in, then that, that would that would do so much to, to basically push manufacturers to, to start applying for, for this kind of uh, thing. Um, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it, it does sort of focus very much, I think, at the moment on easier recyclability of, of the product and easier disassembly but you know going forward with the eco label um, I, I would I would actually really like to see criteria 
targeted at it actually expanding the lifespan of some of these products, um, particularly smaller, you know, more portable devices um, like smartphones. And I, I don't think at the moment the eco label does apply to a smartphone. No, it, it, that yeah, you're right. Portable yet, but if it did, and if you had criteria saying, well, actually, you know, let's make this smartphone uh, last longer, and perhaps then you could make uh, phones more modular. Um, I mean, imagine if it was easy and affordable for somebody to to just extract and replace broken components um, of of their of their phone. So you could walk into a shop where you could pick up spare parts uh, spare parts for your for your iPhone, perhaps. Um, you know, I think something like that would be really transformational, um, and potentially a policy tool like the eco label um, could make that a reality one day. Absolutely, and I guess it might be worth uh, uh, going through some of the key um, positive aspects we've seen uh, in this. Yeah. Um, for example, we we quite liked um, a focus on the durability of batteries used in these products, uh, mentioning that uh, particularly for those tablet mainly and laptop computers that don't have a user re- easily user replaceable battery. Um, at least 80% of the original capacity should uh, remain available after a thousand cycles, which is quite a big, uh, quite a yeah. huge target. Well, if you think about it, if you recharge it once a day, a thousand days, that's what, three years? Right. To? So they're basically saying the battery has to last three years. And a lot of people, potentially some of our listeners, might not be aware that actually there's a, quite a... Um, a remarkable difference in the type of batteries that are provided by different manufacturers in regards to their longevity. And some batteries start degrading quite badly, even within the first year of use. And for example, um, the the new um, eco-labeling prescribes that uh, batteries that have such defects actually need to be replaced within the first two years. So this is quite a big step forward in in support of consumer rights in this area as well. Yeah, if you think about what that battery requirement means, effectively it's forcing, if you have an eco-label, you are guaranteeing your product for a certain lifetime, even without upgrades. Yeah, and and actually this looking at it uh, in almost as a devil's advocate, uh, we almost were wondering whether this rule's been rather, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't say utopian, but actually been honestly pushing the, the limits forward quite a bit, uh, whether this might reduce the immediate uptake by manufacturers. I don't know how you feel about this, uh, Maxine. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think this, this is, it's very interesting because, you know, any, any voluntary scheme at the end of the day is voluntary. Um, and really this is relying on the goodwill of manufacturers you know to actually start doing something about this nothing will change unless they do um so but i think you know that the way the way things are going i i think you know when we talk about sustainability for instance um companies are very conscious now um around around their commitments to this and they they recognize there is kind of a, a first mover advantage if you like in being seen to be the first to do something. Um, and it's a way of um, differentiating your product, uh, making it stand out from, from, from probably what is very a crowded market in the electronics arena. So, 
I think commercially there, there is an advantage there. Um, it would be interesting to, to, to understand perhaps um, what kind of upfront investment um, companies might have to make in order to, to, to actually um, specify um, disassembly procedures. Um, I mean, do they already have these to hand and they're just not wanting to give too much information away? Or do they actually have to really start fundamentally redesigning how they build um, their, their, their products? Um, that is something that's still a grey area. And when I talk to companies, they're not too keen to reveal too much um, at this point. At this stage, at least. Uh, well, we, we were also positively struck by um, the requirement that repair manuals shall be made available freely uh, if companies want to apply for the eco-labeling for that product. And and that is a clear step towards reducing barriers, uh, at least in terms of acquiring information about performing a repair, specifically for us at our community repair events. At times, uh, that reduces the amount of time and therefore the likelihood that a certain repair might be performed at all. Yeah, indeed. Sometimes, for instance, the is it four steps to replace the battery now? Yeah. And a spudger in case yeah. of a tablet. And, a, and one screwdriver. Only one. Which, interestingly enough, means they can't mess around using different kinds of screws to make it more difficult to disassemble. Which is a big, so, big thing, after all. Yeah, it's a really big thing. It reduces both costs and inconvenience for both consumers who want to do it themselves and repairers. And it ga- almost guarantees you can do it. Right? Whereas at the moment, sometimes it's a bit of a mystery. And notice you're not allowed to have any glue in there. Which is another big issue in reducing chances of repairability or making it so hard that a lot of people might have to give up. So this criteria will be valid for the next six years and there's going to be a few months of adjustments uh, that manufacturers uh, will need for sure to, to apply and we'll be happily reporting back when we uh, find out of any new product that has received this eco uh, label going forward. You're listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. We are talking to environmental journalist Maxine Perella. Maxine is the founder of Go Circular, uh, a company that is providing communication uh, services around the circular economy. Maxine, can you tell us a bit more about your work? Yeah, sure. So, so I, I write a lot about something that's called a circular economy, and I, I'm not sure how familiar your listeners will be with this concept. But um, it, will, it, it, it will certainly be good to try to make sense of it, because I think a lot of us are hearing this buzzword uh, quite a lot of times every day, but for a lot of people, it might not mean that much in practical terms. Yeah, sure. So, so basically, um, a circular economy is, is, is about keeping resources in use for as long as possible. So whether that's a product or a component part or even a raw material, it's all about getting the maximum value from that resource whilst we're using it. And then when we're finished with it, instead of chucking it away and it becoming waste, we, we look for new ways to recover it so we can use it again in, in either the same form or, or perhaps a different form. And obviously it doesn't only apply to electronics, but it applies across sectors of the economy, even all the way down to services, provision of services. 
Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, you, you can have lots of different models operating under a circular economy. So that can be a little confusing for people. Um, a lot of people think recycling is an example of a circular economy, and, and it is, but it's, it's a very basic example because normally when you recycle a product um, or a material, you have to put a lot of energy into that process to recycle it. Um, and often um, that material or product is downcycled, so it's downgraded into something more inferior. Over the, over the years, we've seen uh, our work as trying as much as possible to change the perception that recycling should be the right thing at the end of a product's life and actually trying to inform people that reusing that product, even if it's just adding an extra year of life by giving it away to your neighbor or whatever else is always preferable, particularly for small electrical and electronics. And that's what we've seen a lot in our restart parties where people who might access um, used or partly damaged um, products, uh, electrical and electronics through platforms like FreeCycle or Freegal or others come to the events, uh, manage to learn how to fix them a bit and extend their lifespan. What do you see emerging in, in this uh, kind of landscape uh, that gives you a bit of hope? Um, I, I think that the, the greatest thing about this, um, you know, and, and just to expand on, on your point there about reuse, uh, you know, reuse is another model under a circular economy, as is just making a product more durable for building it to last. Um, other other options include remanufacturing a product, um, so actually just recovering the com uh, component parts, so like from a car engine, to make into a new car engine. Um, so it has a performance warranty to match that. Um, and then there is something called product as service models. And this, this is the, uh, the sexier side of the circular economy, if you like, because it's quite disruptive. And it's where companies will be trying to um, basically sell traditional products as a service. So a consumer becomes a user. And one example here is Philips, where they're trying to sell light as a service. Um, and that's, um, so as a consumer, you, you wouldn't pay for the physical hardware of a light bulb or a light fitting. You would actually pay for the measure of light, light output that, that you use in your home or your office. Um, but, you know, across the landscape, there's a lot of very, very big companies now um, really embracing the circular economy because they understand that ultimately it will make financial sense um, because if you look at raw material scarcity um, and volatility of supply in global supply chains, um, some of these products are, are quite rare now and they're becoming increasingly hard to extract from, from the earth. So sure. It's all about safeguarding materials um, once we've extracted them so we can reuse them again and again. You've been covering um, with your work uh, this sector for a few years now and uh, yet I, I've always um, intrigued by the potential that the circular economy has if if it's really happening at scale and it becomes something that inspires all companies to start thinking differently. Um, but also the risk we, we face uh, with it becoming sort of the new co-opted term, uh, just like sustainability has been, and not necessarily um, becoming an opportunity to completely change uh, the, the way products are designed. Um, so 
are you seeing um, a lot of positive examples that uh, beyond uh, the typical, uh, you know, Philips is a good example, but it's been used many times over the last few years to kind of give us hope that circular is really happening. Yeah, you see, we, we have some we have some great companies with great concepts, but actually um, their struggle at the moment is making it commercially viable. So with somebody like Philips, I would imagine there's a challenge there in um, supplying that kind of service to their customers. And generally, I think at the moment, they're trying to supply it to more business customers than, than, than consumers. Um, and that comes down to how businesses procure services procure services. So, for instance, with something like buying light, um, you would normally pay, you know, it would be a capital upfront investment for a company to make. Um, by buying it as a service, suddenly you have to switch budgets. So it becomes part of your operational budget instead of your capital budget. And for big, big companies, um, they don't like that kind of change. And it's quite disruptive. So part of the problem is you might develop uh, a product or a service that's you know, brilliantly circular in theory, but it's then, will your customers want that? Um, and even if some of them do, it's then how, how do they then convince their, their companies that um, they, they can change things like procurement mindsets or even um, investment uh, budgets to, to accommodate that kind of thing. One of the aspects that we are still trying to find uh, a clear message going forward is that big companies, while they're happy to, to think about the flow of their products and trying to find maybe secondary markets where their products can end up after the first use, at the same time, they still seem very keen to push a very fast consumption of new products in Europe and uh, North America, for example. And so while perhaps they might extend the lifespan of a specific product at the same time, um, they're still trying to get people to upgrade a lot. And we're seeing that in smartphones, especially at the moment, even every year an upgrade. And particularly in the um, business market, there seems to be a push towards reselling uh, smartphones, iPhones and similar within the first year to maximize the return on the second-hand device. David, what do you make of this? <coughs> um, yeah, well, same thing in IT generally. You know, people used to talk about an 18-month product life cycle, meaning literally they would throw away the product after 18 months, which is very scary. Now, again, back to the whole circular economy thing, if you consider, rather than considering the product, you consider it a service and you have a highly upgradable product, then it is possible that you could extend the life because what causes machines, to be, computers to become obsolete tends to be things like lack of memory, lack of storage space. So there are plenty of possibilities for it to become more circular where computing could be supplied as a service. So you would buy the use of a laptop for 10 years and pay a rental on it effectively. Uh, but, yeah, at the moment there is still very much a kind of buy it, use it, chuck it mentality yeah. So hopefully the EU labeling, eco labeling we've we've covered earlier might inform yeah. a certain framework towards a circular economy for electrical and electronics and hopefully will be extended to other smaller electricals as well. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Maxine, for being uh, in, with us today. Uh, we have just a couple more minutes to 
let our listeners know about upcoming events. We have two restart parties happening in the next few days. One is this Saturday in Havering at the Herald uh, Hill Community Centre at 11am. And uh, uh, next week, Dave, we have the new edition of The Big <laughs> Fix in Hackney. Tell us. Uh, yeah, this is our annual second year we've been running this. It's a kind of super restart and lots of other things party called The Big Fix. It's running in Stoke Newington Library on the 17th of September, Saturday, from 12 till 4. Um, we'll be fixing, as well as electronics and electricals, there'll be bikes, um, clothes, fabrics, few other things as well come along get your stuff fixed um we'll be having a lovely time and see you there excellent you can learn more about the restart project on our website therestartproject.org on on social media at restart project thanks for listening our final music is by opto noise thanks for creating this with us <laughs>